Good morning. It's good to be with you today. In our class, I want to talk about the wrath of God. I would like to begin by talking about the nature of God's wrath and also how his wrath is often expressed. God's wrath is always just. When the Bible tells us that God brings judgment on the sinfulness of man, it's always described as a righteous judgment, meaning very simply that God always does what is fair and right and just. He never makes any mistakes. God's wrath can in no way be compared to man's wrath. And the reason, of course, is because in many cases, man's wrath is vengeful, loveless, and even sadistic. God takes no pleasure in the suffering of people, and he's never loveless, never loveless in the midst of his wrath. Just look at the cross, and you see both God's love for sinful man, and you also see God's wrath toward man's sin. God's wrath, number two, is based upon his holy character. In order for God to be true to his character, he has to bring a just punishment toward the sinfulness of man. In order for God to be true to his character, he has to hold impenitent sinners accountable for their wickedness. He cannot and will not clear the guilty. He cannot go against his character. God's righteousness demands a punitive response toward moral evil and toward idolatrous people. We see that in ancient nations, nations that were steeped in idolatry, nations that were paganistic, you take the, the empire of Egypt, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Grecians, the Romans. All of those nations were idolatrous and all of those nations were paganistic. Where are they today? They are buried in the sands of time because God brought judgment on them and the Bible tells us about that. And the Bible tells us why God brought judgment upon them. Is our nation any different? God's wrath, number three, is seen in what happened in the Garden of Eden. That's where it all started. We know that when God created the world, placed man in the world, everything was perfect. Man was not a flawed being in the beginning, Adam and Eve were created as sinless, created in the image of God. But we know what happened. We know that God intended for them to be in his image. He created them in his image. Man didn't want to be in the image of God. He wanted to be God. And man was placed in a paradise and he changed it into a wilderness. 
And God created the world to be a theater of his glory, and man turned it into a theater of shame and wickedness. And that's when God placed the family, the human family, under a redemptive curse. We know about that in Genesis chapter 3. And that redemptive curse is an expression of God's judicial wrath and anger. Prior to the fall of man, sickness, disease, sorrow, death and decay did not exist. Everything that would lead to death, physical death, did not exist. Because God created Adam and Eve with immortality. But they lost that immortality. And death passed upon all men because all have sinned, Romans chapter 5. And verse 12, now I used to believe that we were all born immortal. I no longer hold that position. Many scholars will tell you that immortality comes only through Jesus Christ and that it's a gift that God gives to us, that even the soul can die. Jesus said, fear him who can destroy both body and soul. And so the soul can be destroyed. The soul can die. What brought immortality to life and to light? The gospel. Jesus abolished death on the cross and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so we're all facing death. And it'll either be sickness or disease or some random act that God put into motion that will bring about that death. Why should we call the curse of Genesis chapter 3 a redemptive curse? Because God designed it to redeem. He did not design the curse to damage. He did not design the curse simply to bring a punitive punishment. He placed that curse upon the world, a curse of suffering, in order to bring us to redemption. Now, I know that's hard to, to get a hold of, but it's true. That's what the Bible teaches. And therefore, the curse of suffering falls both on the guilty and the innocent people of the earth. And I believe that what we're talking about here today helps us to understand to some degree why bad things happen to good people. It helps us to understand to some degree the suffering that's in the world. And the suffering that you and I endure as Christians isn't all because we're Christians. It's because we live in a world under a curse that was put in motion by God in Genesis 3, and it's ongoing. It's been here ever since. It serves his purposes. Jesus Christ came into our world and lived a sinless, innocent life. And he lived under the same curse under which you and I live. And that curse eventually hung him on a cross. And God worked it out for your redemption and mine. He suffered innocently. There are people in our world who suffer innocently. What about little children? Do they suffer? Are they innocent? 
Yes, they are under the curse. It's not their fault. It's a redemptive, redeeming curse. And therefore, little children suffer for the redemption of the world. And they suffer because of your sins and mine. Thank God you and I can be declared innocent today because of Jesus. You know, our practice causes us to be guilty. Well, now, I won't use the word. We don't practice sin, but we're sinners. All have sinned and failed and fallen short of the glory of God. But in Christ, God declares us innocent because our sins have been cleansed and washed away and forgiven. So even though from the standpoint of who we are as a people, we are all guilty. The human family, we're all guilty. But some of us have turned to Jesus Christ and now we are declared to be innocent. So by the grace of God, there are two groups of people. There's the innocent and the guilty from that standpoint. And what we're saying here is that when God brings suffering for the human family, in whatever way that curse is expressed today, the innocent always suffer right along with the guilty because he doesn't go through picking and choosing. I'm grateful for God's grace, aren't you? And I'm so thankful that that you and I, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, have become a part of the new creation. And because we are in Christ, we are a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new because Jesus Christ is in the process of removing that curse. And one of these days it will be completely lifted. What about these little children in Cosair and St. Jude? Haven't you ever scratched your head and wondered why? Why? These innocent little children. It's the curse of Genesis 3. Because you see, if it was not for Genesis chapter 3, and what we read there, there would be no sickness in the world. There would be no disease in the world. There would be no randomness in the world that's senseless. We see things that's totally senseless that brings all this grief and pain and suffering on people and none of it makes any sense to us and yet God has a purpose for all of it and it's redemptive in nature and it points us to Jesus Christ. Thank God the day is coming when the curse will no longer exist. In the meantime, we need to remember that God is eager enough to subject us to pain in order to purchase. And we need to remember that God is eager enough to subject us to grief in order to open our eyes. He's eager enough to show us that we are not sufficient in and of ourselves. He'll burn that into our hearts. He burns that into the hearts of, of human beings continually. You are not sufficient in and of yourselves. You must trust in me. And so what we said is that Genesis chapter 3 
And what we read there is ongoing. And it answers a lot of questions as to why there is sickness and sorrow and death and decay in the world. And why there is God's judgment during wartime, warfare. It's because of that redemptive curse. The universal flood of Genesis chapters 6 through 9 is an expression of God's wrath toward the sinfulness of man. We know that that entire generation in Noah's day was wiped right off the face of the earth. And God brought judgment on the man's wickedness. 2 Peter 2 and verse 5 states that, that it was the world of the ungodly that God cursed at that time. You and I still live under a covenant of blessing and cursing. If we uh, do what is right, we'll be blessed. If we engage ourselves in wickedness, eventually one way or the other, we're going to be cursed. Isn't that true? That's Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. What about God's people, Israel? When they were going through the wilderness, what happened to them? They endured all kinds of grief and pain and suffering. And the Bible tells us why. We're not left to wonder. We read in Exodus 32, 11, 12, it was an expression of God's wrath toward their sinfulness. And yet he went through the wilderness with them. He never abandoned them. He walked with them in the wilderness. He led them, he guided them, and he fed them toward the promised land. Where do you and I live today? We don't live in a paradise, do we? We live in the wilderness, just like Israel did. And we're headed toward the promised land. And we have to endure all kinds of suffering. And the suffering that we endure, even innocently, we suffer because of a redemptive purpose of God that redeemed the human family. In Ezra 5.12, but because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. So why did God's people end up in Babylon, in captivity? Because God had enough. He couldn't get idolatry out of their hearts. And after 70 years in captivity, finally, finally, they no longer bowed before an idol. God brought his wrath down on them. And he'll do the same to any nation that turns away from him and rejects him. Now, before entering the land of Canaan, Moses wrote down the covenant of blessing and cursing in Deuteronomy chapter 28, 29 and 30. And he said, as long as you do what is right, I'll bless you. I'll bless you in the city, bless you in the field, I'll bless your barns. I'll protect you from your enemies. But if you don't do what is right, I'll curse your cities, I'll curse your fields, I'll curse your cattle, I'll curse your barns, 
and you'll not be able to stand before your enemies. It's precisely what he states. And Moses wrote all that down. And you remember when they entered the land, they finally ended up in the north at Shechem. And that covenant of blessing and cursing was read from Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Half of Israel would read the blessings, half of Israel would read the cursings. The cursings were read from Mount Ebal. Did you know that they have uncovered an altar on the top of Mount Ebal that dates to the time of Joshua, the altar that God told him to build? And did you know that just a little over a month ago they discovered in archaeology a little lead tablet that had Hebrew words on it? Hebrew words. You know what those words were? Nine times the word curse and two times the word Yahweh, Jehovah. It was Hebrew parallelism written on this amulet that they dug out of the ground near Joshua's altar. You will be cursed. Cursed you will surely die. Cursed by Yahweh. Cursed, cursed, cursed. That's what was on that lit tablet. Our young people need to hear that, don't they? Not a made-up story. It's not myth, not legend. The Bible is true. God's Word is true. And we still live in a world where God will either bless or He'll bring a curse. And we, we see that happening under, of course, when we read the Bible under the, both the judges and the kings. God left pockets of resistance in the land. And when they did what was right, he blessed them. When, when they drifted away, he would oppress them. And they suffered as a result of it. And so again, all of that was a part of what we've been talking about. Just take up a concordance and look up all the passages that state that the nation of Israel provoked the God of heaven to wrath. I believe that you and I live in a nation that has been provoking God to wrath for a long time. And it's building up wrath against the day of wrath. When God used the nation of Assyria to carry the northern kingdom of Israel into Assyrian captivity in 721 B.C. He used the Assyrians to carry them into that captivity. We know that Judah went into Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. The northern kingdom of Israel uh, several hundred years prior to that in 721 went into Assyrian captivity. But listen to how Isaiah the prophet described it. In Isaiah 10 and verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. God used Assyria to bring judgment on his own, own people, but he called Assyria the, a rod, simply a rod in my hand, God said, but it's the rod of my anger. Anger toward whom? Toward Israel, his own people. His wrath, his indignation. Isaiah 10, 6. I will send Assyria against an ungodly nation, that is Israel, 
and against the people of my wrath I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like mire in the streets. That's exactly what happened. And history tells us that it happened. Now notice how Paul speaks of God's wrath being stored up against sinners before the final day of wrath. In Romans 2, 5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment, there it is, will be revealed. Of course, we don't have that problem today, do we? We don't have any stubbornness and impenitent hearts. Romans 2.6, here's the gospel. God will repay each person according to what they have done. And Romans 1.18 states, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I said that's the gospel, really. That's not the gospel. That's the bad part. But we're leading up to the good news in Romans. Now, that's what Romans does. It gives you the bad news, and then it gives you the good news. And the bad news is that the wrath of God is being, re is being revealed from heaven this very moment. The wrath of God is being revealed upon the ungodliness and wickedness of mankind. Just read Romans 1, what follows, and see what some of that wickedness involved. It involved sexual perversion. It involved the confusion of gender roles. Wrath against the day of wrath. And in the meantime, God continues to warn man through natural disasters like storms, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, judgments that occur again and again when God's righteous judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the land were righteousness. And when these storms go through and destroy and even take lives, who suffers right along with the guilty? The innocent. God has a purpose in these random acts. So repentance and trusting in Jesus will save us from being subject to God's wrath. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 5, 9 through 10, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him and reconciled to God through the death of his son. There's the gospel. We're saved from a lot of things, aren't we? We're saved from ourselves. We're saved from our sins. We're saved from what happens at a grave, death, but we're also saved from God's wrath. That's what that verse states. And we're no longer the children of wrath. Ephesians 2, 3. We are now made alive, Ephesians 2, 1, by the grace of God, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Let me just stop right here before we go on or else we're going to be busy for a while. 
Aaron, do you have any comments so far? I don't think there is yet. Have I, have I created any kind of confusion here in talking about the wrath of God and the suffering that's in the world? I don't claim to have all the answers on suffering. No one does. Nobody has all the answers on the, the question why. Even Jesus said, my God, my God, why? That's a normal response from people who are hurting and in deep grief and pain. But I believe that one of the things that we need to remember is that all of this is not left to blind chance. All of this is not left to demonic forces. We have another option. And that's what we've been looking at, and that is to see all suffering as God's redemptive work. All suffering as God's redemptive work. And if we can get our minds and our hearts around that, will that not help us to see it through and give us the hope to see it through? And so creation is under God's holy judgment. Anybody have any comments as we go through this? And so the wrath of God is God's redemptive love. It is his redemptive love. And saving grace being expressed in radical ways. In radical ways. There are times when paramedics out on the interstate have to do some radical things to save a human life. We know that's true. I've often wondered how they could do their job when they come upon a wreck and they, they have to do these things that it's just mind boggling how they'll perhaps have to have a saw and saw off a limb, an arm or a leg in order to save. Or they'll have to puncture a lung stick a tube up to drain all the blood out of the lungs. Someone has said that God is the divine paramedic out to save the moral wreck of the universe. And he often takes radical measures to do it. Being saved often requires suffering of unimaginable means. And regardless of how painful and traumatic things might become, we must remember that God is at work chastening us in order to draw us back to Him because He does not want us to be subjects of the final judgment. He doesn't want us to be subjects of the final judgment. There are some circumstances in life that just makes us shake our heads and say, how in the world could God possibly be involved in this or be even be responsible for this? There's one thing we can know for sure. He's not a war criminal. He, he's not a Hitler or a Stalin or Bin Laden or a Vladimir Putin. On the other hand, he's no daughter and grandfather either with whom anything goes. There's a dark line in the face of God. And he will not tolerate evil and wickedness forever. He will not. 
So we need to remember that when the day comes, the innocent suffer right alongside the guilty. And let us remember that the curse of Genesis 3 is a part of our redemption. And let us remember that all the suffering in the world points us to the cross of Jesus Christ one way or the other. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have life everlasting. I hope you've enjoyed our study today in class. Thank you.